Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening and welcome to the CNN Libertarian Town Hall. This is your chance to get to know the candidates behind a party and a movement that's not only alive this election season, but growing. In the year of the outsider, he's looking for the inside track. How about a skeptic at the table? In a time of big talk, he's promising straight talk. I tell the truth, I am not a liar. To the idea of more government promises, he's promising less. Let people make decisions in their own lives. Libertarian Gary Johnson, running mate Bill Weld, two former governors, one governing philosophy. We are fiscally conservative, over the top. We're socially liberal. The question this year, can it win the day? Understand the opportunity, please. Or could they tip the race? It's your choice. The unconventional choice in the least conventional race on record. Facing your questions tonight. Welcome to all of you who are joining us here in the audience in New York, across the country, and around the world. Just so you know, we're being simulcast tonight on CNN International, CNN and Espanol, CNN Go, and Sirius XM Satellite Channel 116. Now, the Libertarian Party may be the new party on your radar, but you should know they were the first to hold its convention, make its choice, and is now working hard right now to get on the ballot in all 50 states. So. With us here tonight, Republicans, Democrats, independents, all of whom share one thing. They say they will not be voting for either Trump or Clinton. Now, this is something that we're hearing more and more. People are not thrilled with their choices. They're not hearing a message that resonates or sounds reasonable or both. And they've got questions. So the question is, can the libertarians provide better answers than what you've heard so far? We're going to see in the hour ahead. As always, the questions come mainly from the audience. We at CNN have looked them over, make sure they don't overlap. I'll be asking a few myself, but mostly staying out of the way. So let's get right to it. Joining us now is the Libertarian presidential nominee, Governor Gary Johnson from New Mexico, and his running mate, Governor William Weld from Massachusetts. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. What an opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. All right, Governor. The question that we hear most often in preparation for tonight is probably going to be the easiest for you to answer. Who is Gary Johnson and what is a libertarian? That has been the main question. So introduce yourselves to the audience and what you represent as a libertarian. Well, uh, I've been an entrepreneur my entire life. Uh, I'm also an athlete. 
uh, and I was the two-term governor of New Mexico, getting to be the governor in a state that's two-to-one Democrat, and I'd never run for political office prior to running for governor of New Mexico. Got re-elected. Of course, Bill and I are both in that same category. And what is a libertarian in broad brushstrokes? Fiscally conservative, socially accepting, tolerant. Look, people should be able to make choices in their own lives, always come down on the side of choice. And then from a military intervention standpoint, uh, look, we're not isolationists in any way whatsoever, but we're non-interventionists. We don't want to get involved in other countries' affairs. We think that the interventions that have gone on have resulted in a less safe world, not a more safe world. All right, so we'll flesh out those principles as the night I'll goes along. I bet that does happen. <laughs> you will. These are going to be very good questions, and they're very pointed coming from a lot of different people. So what do we see in the state of play right now? The election seems to be a proposition of who is less worse for many of the voters. We are steeped in negativity. Uh, in fact, on a personal level, you'll look at both the candidates. We've never had presumptive nominees with as high negatives as we see with Trump and Clinton. So the proposition for you, Governor, is for the people who have negative feelings about Trump and Clinton, why should they be positive about your ticket? Well, and that's what the opportunity that we get to present here tonight. Uh, we are going to, into this as a, as a team, uh, really. Bill Weld, uh, being my running mate, is beyond my wildest uh, expectation, uh, a political role model for me. But uh, we're not going to have separate staffs. And uh, really, stick to the issues. Stick to the issues that are facing this country, and there are plenty. Uh, Governor Weld, Mitt Romney said, hey, you know, the libertarians are on something to hear, but I, I would have wanted to see the ticket flipped. He said, I would have wanted to see Weld on top. Not to create any internecine strife. None, none whatsoever. Uh, but in terms of how you perceive your role here and why you wanted to join this ticket, going from a Republican to a libertarian, explain. Well, I want to be an equal partner of Gary. We served together as governors, and I was governor twice of Massachusetts in the 90s. And uh, we had kind of a mutual admiration society when we served together uh, back then. Uh, before that, I was a federal prosecutor for seven years. Uh, so we do bring a lot of executive experience to the table, eight years in Gary's case. Each of us, our first elective office was governor. In my case, 13 years if you count the Justice Department. So that's a lot of problem solving all day long. Mm. The last two days, we've seen something somewhat unusual, if not unprecedented. Uh, big blocks of national time used by each of the main candidates to basically pull out a big stick and beat the other one over the head with it. Uh, their main propositions that were put out, I want your take on them. Hillary Clinton went first. And fundamentally, the argument uh, that she made is that Trump's business pedigree is a farce, that he's not a good businessman. You founded and ran your own uh, successful business in construction. What is your assessment? Do you agree with Clinton when she says Trump is not a legitimate businessman? It should not be seen as a plus. You know, I do leave that to others, Chris. The issues that I have with Trump, uh, starting with immigration, starting with free trade, uh, going on and on and on, killing the families of Muslim terrorists. Really, it's what's coming out of his mouth that I really have issues with. And those are the issues that are facing this country. The big issues, but obviously your assessment of the state of play is relevant also. The return from Trump was that Hillary Clinton is the most corrupt person to ever run for president. Is that a view that you would embrace? That is not a view that I would embrace. Uh, I don't think either of us are going to engage in any sort of name calling that we're going to keep this to the issues. <laughs> and the issues are plenty. All right, good. One of the big issues whenever you want to run a successful campaign is money. Nobody likes it. 
but everybody has to play by the rules until those rules are changed. There was a lot made of the fact that Clinton has so much more money than Trump right now. Obviously, the mitigating factor there is that Trump says he could self-fund in a check. Money is going to be an obstacle uh, for you as well. Right now, I believe last count of disclosure was 175 grand on hand. How can you raise the money to be effective in a race of this magnitude? Well, I think with the appearance here on this uh, town hall, I think that banking fun- on the CNN ticket, are you? Yeah, you know, there it is, right there. <laughs> and and doesn't it speak volumes that we are sitting here on uh, on the money that we have raised? So it is a different kind of campaign. Our earned media, social media, and we're looking to take advantage as as much advantage as we can on that. And Bill. Uh, you know, Bill's thing is fundraising. He likes to fundraise, and he knows a lot of people. And uh, you've it's been you've been the in thing. the hardest position in politics on several different occasions, which is the one to pick up the phone and ask for the money. And, and I like doing that. If you can't sell yourself or your candidate, uh, what can you sell? So I was Pete Wilson's finance yep. chair nationally when he ran for president, and I had the honor of serving at Ms. Mitt Romney's uh, co-chair in New York for both of his presidential runs. And I've hung around the Republican National Committee for a long time. So uh, half of the big Republican donors have said they're not going to support Mr. Trump. That's a lot of a lot to work with. So what are you finding? What do you feel comfortable disclosing to us? I know these these uh, conversations are often confidential and uh, reasonably so. But what's your pitch and what are you hearing in response? Oh, the pitch is that we're the people who say we want the government uh, out of your pocketbook and out of your bedroom. And if people don't subscribe to that, then it's a longer conversation. But that was my pitch to the Republican <laughs> National Convention in 1992. And, and much of the, and I won't say the never Trump crowd, it's just the people who have decided not yet to support Mr. Trump, who are Republicans, uh, they, they do uh, share our view of being uh, fiscally conservative and socially inclusive. So it's not a hard, it's not a bad conversation. It often takes two, three, four conversations, but the first conversation is always easy. The first conversation is easy. Have you had any success yet? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You don't want to throw a number at me or anything no, no, like no, that? No, 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 no. <laughs> well played, Governor. Well played. All right. Uh, Governor Johnson, let's do some word association here. I'll say the name. You hit me with the first thing that comes to mind. Remember, we've got an audience here and a lot of people watching out there as well. Uh, President Barack Obama. Uh, good, good guy. Hmm. <laughs> One. Uh, Governor Will. Barack Obama? Uh, I, I think he's been statesmanlike the last uh, couple of years. He had a disappointing first term, and I think he's picked up his game the last couple of years. It's going better for him. Hillary Clinton? Um, uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, a, a wonderful public servant, I guess I would say that. Old friend, nice kid, newer in her 20s. We shared an office on the Nixon impeachment. Real bond, lifelong. Seriously, not kidding. Donald Trump. I'm sure there's something good to say about Donald somewhere. I'm sure. In the, in the uh, debates, I play a game in the, in the debates. So during the Republican debate, when it was asked the question, will you support the nominee? Um, I would have said, look, uh, I'll, I'll leave it open, but I would not support Donald Trump based on what he has said to this point. And that was all the things that he had said to that point. Uh, I'll leave it open, but everybody else said they would support the nominee. I would have said no, no, no to Donald Trump unless things change. Donald Trump, one word. Huckster. 
I think it's very interesting, though, until that last word. Um, you both tried to be positive about the names that were oh, offered. No, if you give me more words, I had a lot more behind <laughs> I only asked you one. The choice was yours, Governor, I, but you only had one word. And I took the liberty of But very interesting, a different tone on the stage tonight when people are looking for reasons to be positive. We have a lot of issues to cover with a lot of anxious people in the audience, so we're going to get right to it. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we get to what the town hall is all about. The CNN Libertarian Town Hall is going to begin right after this. Welcome back to the CNN Libertarian Town Hall. We have candidates Gary Johnson and William Weld. It's time now for questions from the audience. First up, we have Jeanette McCoy. Jeanette was inside the Pulse nightclub when it was attacked on June 12th. We all know that situation too well. One of her friends was shot. Uh, she took off her shirt. She tied a tourniquet around his wounds and helped him. Thank you for being here, Jeanette, and I'm sorry about what you had to go through. Well, thank you for having me. Um, well, my question is, is um, I do believe in the constitutional right of bearing, of, uh, to bear arms. I do uh, own a gun. Um, yet my question is, um, even though uh, when it comes to our car situation, it's also considered a deadly weapon, yet we have to have insurance and we register it every single year. Now it's actually easier to buy a gun and to use it than to legally drive a car. You said America would be safer if it was easier to buy uh, guns and if more people carried them. Um, especially out in public. But last week, uh, when I went out dancing with my friends, unfortunately, I ended up in the middle of the worst um, mass shootings in our nation's history. And I I'm, I'm still a little bit distraught about it. Um, oh. Yes. But uh, what I did want to ask is how would uh, making it easier to buy guns with minimum requirements, especially unnecessary uh, military rifles, how is that making it easier for us? Uh, I don't think our position would be uh, making it easier. We're not looking to roll back anything, but uh, with regard to keeping uh, guns out of the hands of the mentally ill, with regard to keeping guns out of the hands of uh, potential terrorists, Bill talked about establishing a thousand-person task force to uh, potentially uh, address that uh, a hotline. Look, we should be open to these uh, discussions. I would love to uh, understand what transpired between the shooter and the FBI, for example. Getting in the middle of that, that that's why I want to get elected president. I just, uh, I'm, I, I do really well in that situation. I'm not saying I would be value added, but look, the FBI came in contact with this guy three times. What transpired? Why wasn't this guy deprived of, of his guns. Well, when we look at that question, it takes you down the road of whether you see the Second Amendment as being open-ended or closed. Put some more meat on the bones of your position on this because your baseline is, I don't believe in restrictions. I think that people should be able to exercise their Second Amendment right. But then you bring up uh, mental health and that gets tricky because now you're dealing with super regulation because unless it's an adjudicated mental illness, now you're dealing with really subjective measurements and real potential curtailment of rights. So how do you balance saying, I don't believe in restriction, but then being open to very serious restrictions? Well, that, that number one, you shouldn't uh, close off that debate. You shouldn't close off that discussion. We should be open to how that uh, might take place. And look, automatic weapons are not allowed in the United States. They've been illegal. And when you talk about semi-automatic weapons, uh, th that's a category that encompasses 25 million rifles in this country. Please 
chime yeah, in. Because also, you've said that you've evolved on this issue. When you were governor in Massachusetts, uh, you saw gun control as being necessary. Now, so what do you mean so when my, you say you my evolved? Most, my most relevant experience, Chris, is my seven years in the Justice Department, and I was an organized crime prosecutor, and I saw the way Rudy Giuliani, myself, others took out the whole top three echelons of organized crime in the 1980s. It's by having a central place where you collect all the intelligence, you build a case bit by bit, and then you go after the whole enchilada. And I think we should do the same with a thousand-person FBI task force treating ISIS as a gigantic organized crime family, which is exactly what it is. And you have them add the probable cause bit by bit, just like the Justice Department does. Jim Comey, the head of the FBI, mm -hmm. uh, was practically a national hero when he was deputy attorney general, together with uh, my deputy in the Justice Department, Bob Mueller, who was head of the FBI for 12 years. These people know how to do this. Task forces like the department had against, uh, had against Enron, financial crime. So they could get results there treating ISIS as an organized crime family and taking them out. All right, so there's a piece. Governor Johnson, right now you have a sit-in going on, uh, at least right before we started. I don't know what the current status is. Uh, but do you agree with what is driving the sit-in by the congressman right now? No, I, I think that these lists are subject to error, and if you're one of those error members, and, and I am talking now about the terrorist list or the no-fly list that uh, has active members of Congress uh, on both lists. But um, you know those are the very small minority of oh, cases. Oh, ab absolutely. And there is due process to deal with your being on a list. Right. Right, but, because the suggestion would be, you're wrongly on a list. We can deal with that. You get a gun when you're on one of those lists. Now it's out of our hands. Believe me, these are really sensitive issues. And I'll just point out that uh, I, I, uh, I kind of sort of want to pivot here. I mean, the death penalty uh, is subject to 3 to 4% error on the death penalty. So if, if you're in that category um, and you're put to death, that's my opposition to the death penalty, is that all of these government lists are subject to error. And if you happen to be one of those, Chris, uh, you may have your life adversely affected. No question. Another question from the audience, shall we? Ron Lichman. Uh, he works as a portfolio manager, and he is the chair of the Manhattan Libertarian Party. What do you have? Good evening, Governor and Governor. A question on health care from a libertarian perspective. I understand, Governor Johnson, your position uh, is to replace government-run health insurance and medical care with a very competitive free market system, which you expect to re reduce the costs of uh, health insurance, reduce the costs of medical services, and provide a lot more choice for consumers and patients. But in, in the event that there's a, one of, a fellow American who doesn't get health insurance or even opts out and then gets sick and can't afford the cost of the care that he needs to survive, is it really a libertarian principle that society should say he's made a choice, bears the consequences, and should be allowed to die? Well, both of us, uh, having been governors of our respective states, uh, look, there should be a safety net uh, out there regarding uh, health care. And in, in no way are we saying that this safety net should be eliminated. 
Uh, president Obama's health care plan. At the end of the day, I'm looking to get uh, elected president uh, of the United States. So I'm going to sign on to any initiatives really that bring a free market approach to health care. Uh, my insurance premiums currently have quadrupled. I haven't seen a doctor in three years. Um, I'm uh, agreeing with uh, Chief Justice Roberts uh, that it is a tax and bringing free market approach to health care. We would not have insurance to cover ourselves for ongoing medical need. We would have insurance to cover ourselves for catastrophic injury and illness. And if we could bring genuine competition uh, to uh, health care, uh, health care would be one-fifth the cost of what it is right now. You would have Stitches R Us. You would have advertised pricing uh, with uh, outcomes that you, you'd see published outcomes. Something that right now, when any of us go to the doctor, we have no idea what it's going to cost. We have no idea what the outcome's gonna be. We get a bill, we know that nobody is gonna actually pay the amount of money that's on that bill. Well, uh, if, if there were a free market for healthcare, uh, I, I think you'd see dramatic savings. And, and it's all about savings. Look, it's all about savings. It's all about more effective delivery of health care. Earlier today, House Speaker Paul Ryan unveiled the Republican plan to repeal and replace Obamacare. What would you do with Obamacare? Well, uh, looking to get elected president and vice president uh, and, and as a team, uh, hey, we're going we're gonna, to uh, take a look at this legislation. And if it accomplishes the notion of lower costs, uh, and as good or better health care, count on, count on the signature. So is Obamacare out, or is it in and modified? What is it? I'm going to assume that uh, Republican proposals accomplish that. If the, if the proposals don't accomplish that, then I'm not on board. Hmm. Another question. Emily Laser, uh, she works in international development, is leaning toward voting for you, Governor Johnson. Emily. Governor Johnson, on your website you state that a woman's right to choose is the law of the land, and that if a woman wants to exercise that right, she should be able to do so without being subject to persecution or denied healthcare access. However, states like Texas continuously put laws in place that restrict abortion services as well as clinics. As a libertarian, what do you view as the federal government's role in ensuring a woman's right to choose in every state? Well, what people don't understand right now is, is the law of the land. The law of the land currently is not Roe v. Wade. It's Casey versus Planned Parenthood. And uh, the law of the land is, is that a woman has the right to have an abortion up to the point of viability of the fetus. And the Supreme Court has defined viability of the fetus as sustaining the life of the fetus outside of the womb, even if by artificial means. That's the law of the land. We're not looking to change the law of the land in any way. And bottom line, what a difficult decision. Can there be a more difficult decision in anyone's life other than, and I'm talking about the woman now who's facing abortion, than that decision, but that's a decision that should lie strictly with the woman involved. But I think it's okay for the government to be involved in ensuring clinic access because that's uh, guarding a fundamental constitutional right of the individual. So that's not the nanny state. That's good government, not bad government. That winds up being the follow for Emily's question, I think. Emily, tell me if I'm wrong. Which is, you say, I want the government out of your life that way, so it's choice. But does the government have a role in protecting that right as the governor just suggested? Because that might not be the pure libertarian view, but it may be more along what I'm hearing from you two. 
Does the government have a role in protecting the right to choose that you say you hold inviolate? Well, back to the law of the land, perhaps, Bill, you can take off on that a little bit. But uh, the law of the land, uh, I, I stated it, and we're not looking to change the law of the land. And fundamentally, look, a woman's right to choose and Planned Parenthood. I think Republicans, um, really, they alienate a lot of people when they, stop, when they talk about defunding Planned Parenthood. Uh, Planned Parenthood <laughs> does a lot of good, and that starts with uh, women's health. People sometimes say to me, you know, why should the government say that uh, equality of marriage, uh, gays and lesbians being able to marry, uh, is, is, uh, is the law of the land and, and uh, isn't that the nanny state? No, not at all. That's the Constitution mm. telling you that uh, marriage equality is dictated by the Due Process Clause and the Equal uh, Protection Clause. That's not the government. Mm. So I think that's a canard to say the government should have no role in uh, safeguarding the constitutional right. Now, let's go to another question from Amanda Lindemann that kind of touches on the outer parameters of this discussion we're having on this issue in particular. She lives in New York, currently undecided. Amanda. Good evening. Thank you for coming this evening and taking my question. Do you pray and do you believe in God? Who's the question? I have to admit to praying once in a while, and yes, I do believe in God. Governor? Same on both. Same on both. What do you want people to know about you in terms of religion? One, I mean, is the answer it's none of your business, or do you go to church? Do you ascribe to a particular religious philosophy? I was raised a Christian. Um, I do not attend church. And if there's one thing that I've taken away from Christianity, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Why don't you go to church? Uh, I don't. I ask you as a suffering Catholic. You know what I mean. We, we, the, the question just comes up. Folks. I'm I'm one of those that just uh, I I the God that uh, that I speak to uh, is not uh, doesn't have a particular religion. Hmm. Uh, another question, shall we? Paul Jost. Paul's a real estate investor from Miami Beach. He's a lifelong Republican, but he will not support Donald Trump. He says, and he's leaning towards supporting you, gentlemen, sir. Thank you. Uh, governors, the uh, presumptive Republican nominee has said that he wants to build a big, huge, very expensive wall on our border with Mexico. He also wants to uh, deport 11 million undocumented residents. Do you agree with this plan? And if not, what do you plan to do to defuse this very emotional situation? Well, I, I find both of his statements just incendiary, and I am speaking as a border state governor. Uh, the deportation, deportation of 11 million illegal immigrants is really based in misinformation, uh, building a fence across the border, uh, borders on insanity. Um, uh, we should make it as easy as possible for somebody that wants to come into this country and work to be able to get a work visa. I'm not talking about a green card. I'm not talking about a citizenship, but a work visa that should entail a background check and a social security card so that applicable taxes get paid. They are not taking jobs that U.S. citizens want. They're hard-working individuals. The reason for the 11 million illegal immigrants is because there are jobs that exist in this country and they can't get across the border legally, so they cross illegally. And that's not the limit of the uh, really unreasonable foreign policy proposals by the presumptive Republican nominee. The notion of uh, uh, having uh, Japan and uh, South Korea have access to nuclear weapons is crazy in a world where nuclear proliferation is the number one threat to the security of the world. The notion that he's going to impose huge penalties on Mexico and China at will 
uh, violates our obligations under treaties and international agreements like the World Trade Organization. You cannot be president of the United States and talk like that. You cannot even be a candidate for president of the United States and talk like that. And let me for a second, uh, how's the deportation of 11 million illegal immigrants going to work in my home state, New Mexico? where the population is 48% Hispanic. Is this going to be a knock on the, well, it's going to amount to a knock on the door by the federal government. They come to my door. Oh, gee, uh, you're the former governor. Um, um, I guess we won't search your house. But the next door they go to is statistically going to be Hispanic, and they're going to have to be papers produced. And I'm just telling you, this is incendiary. Uh, Governor, you, well, you've gone beyond incendiary. You've gone beyond bad politics. You recently likened Trump's immigration policies to what happened in Nazi Germany. I sure did. Why? I, I think uh, that uh, the Republican presumptive nominee has succeeded in tapping into the very worst political traditions of the United States and, and other countries. The amount of fear engendered of Europe uh, in Europe uh, with the knock at the door that Governor Johnson mentions, and Frank uh, hiding in the attic, hoping no noise will alert the Nazis below, they're directly, uh, directly analogous. In to this, liken it to, to genocide? I mean, you know, this, this is an no, ugly no. scenario. It's There's the no round question up. about it. It's the roundup that, that, that he has proposed, the, the rounding up and deportation of 11 million people. I mean, that's a lot of people, and that's going to engender a lot of fear, pit citizens and non-citizens against the government, uh, breed disrespect for uh, authority. Uh, I just think it's, it's not a, a realistic prescription whatsoever. So how do you ba balance? Back to, back to the work visas. Look, if you're in the country illegally, sure. there are 11 million illegal immigrants. Come on in, get your work visa. As long as you've been law-abiding, uh, we'll give you the work visa. And let's start separating those that are here illegally, that, uh, the, the bad people that uh, are here. Make it easily easy to distinguish from a border patrol standpoint the difference between somebody that is crossing illegally and, and the woman with her kids who knows there are jobs in El Paso, but she's got to wait across the Rio Grande with her kids to get and that we, job. We, but that would also be considered illegal, though. It, it is. It's, yes, it is. From a compassionate standpoint, I get the distinction, but from a legal one, you have to deal with that as, as the commander. So, 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 like I say, make it as easy as possible for her to get a work visa so, she, so that the line is moving to get across the border. And if she's gotten across the border already and she's held a job, uh, look, come on in, get a work visa. Let's dot the I's and cross the T's on your being here legally. But that doesn't mean we should all panic and say, amnesty, amnesty, that means we're going to have 11 million illegals as citizens. They don't have to become citizens. They can be, you know, held to their limited period of work and then go home. Citizenry was, will still be a process. And I'm not even, I'm t not even talking about being a citizen. Let's, let's get beyond the 11 million illegal immigrants with, a, with an easy work visa program. Christina Casolino has a question. She's from Little Neck, New York. She is undecided. Christina. Hello. If you had a choice, Trump or Clinton, which one would you pick? <laughs> and who do you think is going to be like a better president? Look, uh, I've been a, a self-described libertarian since 1971. And since 1971, there's always been a libertarian pick. Uh, my first vote for a libertarian and president was a uh, uh, Borgland against uh, Ronald Reagan his second term because Ronald Reagan blew the lid off of uh, deficits. So I know there will always be a libertarian choice. All right, but I'm saying, I think the question, again, I always like to, feel free to tell me I'm wrong. It happens all the time. But 
if you had to say that one of these is more qualified than the other, bring, be bring back waterboarding or worse, or it's not going to. You're not going to give I'm an not, answer. I'm not going. No, I'm not going to give in to voting for one of the other. Oh, I would. Thank you. Would you? <laughs> and that's why you're a good team, Governor Weld. Well, I think Mrs. Clinton, uh, no matter what you might think of various economic policies, is very well qualified to be president of the United States. I would not say the same of Mr. Trump, with all respect. Hmm. Sorry? All right. Did you get the answer? Yes. No, not really. You got it from one of them. Well, you know, you got to take what you get sometimes. Thank you. you. Thank you. Um, All right. So we're going to have a lot more audience questions to come. As you can see, they're really touching on a range of issues. So please, in a second, come back and watch the rest of the CNN Libertarian Town Hall. Stay with us. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 